The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. There's much to learn, many questions to ask, many things to ponder in the book of Job. I'm going to read only the first five verses today, really just giving you a sketch of introduction as we look at this, and hopefully we'll really enter into the text more next Sunday. Listen as I read from Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. We assume perhaps he means birthday. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did continually. Father, I ask that you help us in this study. This is your word. You have things to say here that you have not said in the same way elsewhere, and we hope you would help our hearts to be open to hear and learn and respond for Jesus' sake. Amen. I think it was about 20 years ago that I talked once with a father who was a ruling elder, not of my church at the time, but of another church, and I had met this man through our presbytery, and he was telling me about his rather accomplished daughter in proud terms. It seems this girl had graduated at the top of her high school class as valedictorian, and when we were talking, she was the a student at a well-known, very uh, desirable, prestigious Christian college, getting Dean's List grades as a chemistry pre-med major. She was an attractive girl, socially popular, morally, spiritually strong in Christ. This young lady, it would seem, had it all together. She almost seemed to have the golden touch of everything she did academically, socially, and otherwise. And you would wonder if a father was expressing a concern, what in the world would this father be concerned about? Well, it was unique. Her dad was a discerning man, I think, and he said, you know, Pastor, I'm a little concerned for my daughter because she's had so many things go right and has accomplished so much 
at a young age. One of these days, she's bound to taste real failure, and I feel sure she is not going to know how to cope with it. Isn't that an interesting parental concern? She wasn't in trouble. She wasn't failing. But here was her father worried that when she did, she wouldn't know how to handle it. Well, that man actually might have been the parent of God's long-ago tried-and-true servant, Job. Last Sunday, I told you that after a long series of messages in John's gospel, we would move to the Old Testament and try to listen to what the Lord might say in this book of Job. I spend a long time deciding what I will preach on. It is not just a matter of flipping open a Bible and poking my finger at a page. And uh, I bring you this book because we need the balanced diet in our exposition of Old Testament as well as New And because I think we need books that challenge us in unusual ways, and I would even say that as your preacher, it has to challenge me. I'm at a stage of life where I can easily open file drawers and pull out sermon notes of many, many books of the Bible, and some that you have never heard here that I've preached other places. I have never preached consecutively through Job. I've preached occasional messages from it, but never all the way through. And I'm feeling at this point in my life that I need to challenge myself to sort of plow new soil, if, it, if you think of it that way, in the Word of God. I almost changed my mind about it this past week when I got into some of the difficulties of Job, but I said, Lord, help me persevere, because this is a book that probably, I would say, second only to Revelation, has many kinds of, of difficulties and complexities in it. And that isn't to, to warn you that it's so difficult you're not going to be able to understand it. I'm not saying that. But uh, from an interpretive point of view, there are many questions and things to deal with. I don't come to you as the great expert. I come to you as someone through whom I think God speaks. I know he does as you pray and as you support me. So do that as I work through this difficult book. Today I just wanted to tackle a few verses that would set the man before us and mainly allow me to speak about some things of general introduction, and then we'll really move into the text. I actually plan to speak three times just from chapter 1. That sounds pretty much, let's see, do a little math, three times 42. No, Uh, no, that's not what's going to happen. Uh, There will be the most from this first chapter because there is so much to introduce. And then we'll really be able to move rapidly in some cases because there are long speeches that can be summarized, uh, you know, of three or four chapters that we don't need to labor over every paragraph. But I think we'll move through in a way that you'll see us making progress. The book of Job centers around one great central question. And the question is, why should a faithful believer and pious follower of the one true God experience suffering? Let me tell you, the theme of the book is not why is there suffering. That's too broad. It's not why do people suffer for their own stupidity or bad decisions. It's why does a faithful believer and pious follower of the true God experience suffering? You will have to decide for yourself at the end of the book if we've answered the question. You may think we have not. But I'll promise you we will have grappled with it. We will have seen 
false answers to it, things that are not answers. And we will see at the end of a book a man who suffered greatly, standing in awe and worship before his sovereign, faithful, and good God, whether or not he had all the answers that he thought he should get. In fact, we may decide that in the end of it all, it's the fact that we can be standing before the sovereign, gracious, good God, worshiping him and being steadfast in that when we don't have the answers. That may really be the ultimate lesson of the book of Job. I was reflecting on the fact about suffering in general and American Christians suffering. I would freely admit to you I am not a person who has had tremendous amounts of undue suffering in my life. I can single out some incidents, but I've had reasonably good health myself. Uh, My family has reasonably been healthy. We've certainly had some close family members die, unfortunately, a niece who died uh, very young, and Carol's dad dying quite surprisingly at age 61, and other things that have come, but we've never gone through some of the hardships that many of you have that I've walked beside you in. And so I don't come here as an expert sufferer. I hopefully come as someone who's listening to the Word of God. But, you know, I I think about the fact that American Christians of the present century, maybe people who almost think we're entitled not to suffer. We expect not to suffer more than people of ages gone by, when you think about it. The American middle class at this time in history is relatively insulated, not in every instance, of course, but in many, many ways we are insulated against misfortune and tragedy. We have social systems of support that supply us with income and health care and various kinds of protections that people could not take for granted in earlier days, earlier times. We, if, if you are at all in the great middle class, which I would say most of you are, you who may even be the hardest off financially among us are still doing better financially than the vast percentage of people even alive today, let alone in centuries past when people lived in grinding poverty and sought to just barely survive. When you think of diseases that have gone that are strangers to us, how many of you have had any immediate experience with cholera or typhoid or smallpox or the plague? When Europe, for example, they couldn't even carry the bodies out of the houses with enough healthy people to do that work as a whole percentage of the population was swept away. Or times when bloody martyrdoms were very common and people by the hundreds were simply killed for their faith. It's a fairly new phenomenon that we can think that suffering is abnormal in our lives. We think it's our entitlement to have great health into our 80s and 90s and to die quietly in our beds. We think that's the way it has to be. And if it's any different, what's wrong, God? Well, it's been different for the great majority of people, of mankind, and even for many it is today. We cannot simply think that suffering and pain is something that happens to other people who are not born again by faith in Christ. It's possible that future days are coming for Christians in our 
strange secular culture of this day that there will be new forms of suffering that we will have to expect and not think why that can't happen. Well, I'm asking you to meet a very godly man. And as we get a little farther in, by the end of chapter 1, we will meet this man, if you glance ahead at 120 and following, you will meet this man, Job, sitting on the ash heap in bodily pain, mourning the deaths of all of his children, cursed by his wife, a man who was so rich in our terms, he was certainly a billionaire, not a millionaire. This man was a billionaire in the measurement of his society, and he lost it all, and then was cursed by his wife and rebuked by his friends. Get ready to hear this man say to God, why? And get ready for a long silence, because God didn't answer why right away. Be ready that to hear explanations coming from others that are wrong. And yet they'll be pounding against this man like stones hailing upon him from the sky. Well, first of all, I give you a brief who, where, when, and what introduction to Job. Just a few background things to know. You might ask, who wrote this book? It's called Job. That's the main character, of course. Job didn't write it. No one thinks Job wrote the book. We do not know who wrote it, who wrote it. We can't even easily speculate who wrote it, nor do we even know exactly what period of history it comes from, except that it's very old. So here's an eloquent book by which the Holy Spirit of God speaks. You could compare it perhaps to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but it certainly belongs in God's Word. No question about that. It's obviously a work of a literary genius guided by the Spirit of God, but the author's name remains anonymous. Now, this book is not a fable. It might even sound like it starts out, once upon a time, there was a man in the land. No, it's not a fable. It's about a real man. Real characters abound with real names in a real place. The land of Uz does exist. This is not Oz. It's Uz. Job was not a Hebrew. He was not a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He may have been a contemporary of Abraham. We don't even know that for sure. But the land of Uz is a place to the east. If you can picture the map of Palestine at all, you can probably picture the the Jordan River running north and south and the Sea of Galilee kind of in the middle. If you're looking at that, move up northeast of there, and that's up in the deserts of Syria and northern Jordan today is where Uz was located, outside the boundaries of the covenant nation that came out of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Job was not a Hebrew, so he did not have the law of God in the Ten Commandments. He did not have a Hebrew priest to go to to pray for him. We are told here he acted as his own priest, much as the man Melchizedek did and others in the Old Testament outside of Israel. But we do think that the one who eventually wrote his story down was a Hebrew because of the facility with the Hebrew language and various biblical references and things that are here. It does seem as if the author was a Hebrew, though Job 
was not. Now, if you're studying literature, one of the things you ask is, well, what kind of literature is this? If you want the technical term, an English major would know what a genre is. What genre does Job belong to? Well, many would say it's wisdom literature. It's actually grouped with wisdom literature, uh, going along with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and other such books. But it's also grouped, as you see it, right before the great poetry of the Psalms, and it is both of those things. It has wisdom in it. It has various proverb statements, like a familiar statement will be, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. That's a proverb, and you'll see proverbs occurring all the way through Job in various places, not biblical proverbs, but resembling biblical proverbs. You'll see much poetry. There's a lot of poetry in Job. And and if you even glance ahead, flip the pages and see how your English Bible structures the text, and you can see that it will sometimes set the text up in a different way, indicating that that's primarily a poetic uh, passage. But Job is something else that no other book is. It's, It's really alone in this. It's the only biblical book that you could say is a drama or a play. And in fact, modern writers of plays, I believe Archibald MacLeish made a modern play uh, called J.B. My high school once performed it. I wasn't in it, but I know they did it. And it's actually a modern, anglicized version of the book of Job. People have seen this drama, and, and you can take, you know, and assign the different speakers to step forward on the stage and give their speeches, and then someone else argues with that or defends against that. It's the only book of the Bible that really is in that exact kind of format. Well, maybe you look for Job. Maybe you're saying, well, I'm glad we're undertaking this because I've had some suffering in my life and I've had questions about suffering, and so I guess I'm going to get all my questions answered. Uh, No, you're not. The interesting thing about Job is the questions it doesn't answer. Sometimes it simply leaves us facing great realities and saying, here's the reality, and almost you can say the phrase that we say today, it is what it is, and we don't have the answer for it. It's not a book of quick solutions or glib answers. Numerous things are put forth. Whole long, long speeches are given by the friends of Job that really, if it's all right to say this about text of the Bible, they're very boring because they're so wrong. They're telling Job, well, Job, will you please just repent of your sins? We know you're a sinner. You wouldn't be suffering like this if you weren't a great sinner. So identify your sin, confess it, and be done. Well, that's not the answer. That's completely wrong. And we hear these people, nevertheless, repeating this over and over and over. Job is a man who at the end of the day has to say how weak he is. He wants to confess sin if he knew what it was, but he doesn't know what to confess. He's been relatively upright, not sinless, but reasonably upright, and he searched his conscience, and he says, I've confessed everything I can confess. I'm wrung out. I don't know what else to say to God. And Job found out that God's power was made perfect as he was willing to confess weakness. Does that sound familiar? The Apostle Paul When I'm weak, then I'm strong. I discover the strength of God 
in my own weakness? Well, that's some of the introductory things, but let's say now that which gives this message a title today, introducing to you a blameless and upright man. I want to take these characteristics that are named about Job in these first couple of verses and just look briefly at them. As we read, there was a man in the, in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and he was blameless and upright. He feared God. He turned away from evil. That's a great introduction. Here was a man, father of ten children, rather fantastically, almost unbelievably rich in terms of livestock. He wasn't a nomad. He probably didn't live in a tent. He probably had a rather well-established estate to have this kind of tremendous, 500 yoke of oxen, think of that, 3,000 camels. I had one experience with a camel in my life, and I don't ever want to have another. He was the nastiest critter, tried to bite my hand off. I don't know what you'd do with 3,000 of them. Don't, Don't put me in charge of them. Look at what this guy had. It says he was the greatest man of his of his land, greatest of all the people of the east. Everybody knew who Job was. But what we want to concentrate on for a moment is what's said about his character and his spirituality. He was blameless and upright. Now, that does not mean perfect. We tend to think, perhaps, it's being said he was sinless. No, he was certainly a sinner, as every person is. Blameless does not mean perfect. If you want to see another definition of that, go to 1 Timothy 3. I was teaching new members today about the government of our church and about what elders and deacons are and so on. 1 Timothy 3 gives the qualification for church officers, and there Paul calls for elders to be, quote, above reproach and deacons to be blameless. Now, again, there's not a perfect elder or deacon in Westminster Presbyterian Church that I've met. If he would please step forward and make himself known to me, I wish that maybe he would, but I know that will not happen. Our men are modest and realistic enough to know that. But these terms recognize one's reputation. The point is not that you're perfect through and through. The point is there is not scandalous blame against you or, uh, you know, you speak this person's name out in the marketplace and someone says, oh, him? I know about him. No, it, it might be like using the term well-respected or man of integrity, a person whose morality and godliness at least overshadows any negative character attributes. He's a sincere, trustworthy person, a person who would be looked to as a community leader, and that even unbelievers might look upon this person and say, oh, yes, indeed, that's a, that's a fine individual. I was thinking about the kind of man, the kind of character that Job had, and I thought to myself, gee, is is it still open that you can register somebody for the USA presidential primary? You know, we had a Jeb, exclamation mark, who's no longer in the running. Maybe we could have a Job, exclamation mark. Well, I don't think that's going to work. But Job was a man who could have held that kind of power, even the power of the American presidency. And I don't think it would have simply swelled his ego and his his head up to bursting point. I think it would have made him genuinely humble before God to handle such power. He's upright here. 
which is a word that, an Old Testament word that means much like the same as justified. His sins have come before God and been reviewed by God. Psalm 32, 2 says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord no longer counts against him. Well, you see what Job was doing with his sin. He was bringing it to God, bringing sacrifices, recognizing, repenting what he had done wrong. It says he feared God. He deeply respected God. Not fear in the sense of run away from God, but rather run towards him and say, God, here's what I am. Here's my weaknesses. You see me as I am. Forgive me. Prayer was a second language for Job. He saw God as his mediator, and he came in repentance repeatedly, not only for himself, you see, but even for his family. He saw himself as the priest for his family. He was worried. Perhaps his children, maybe they had a few rough edges, and Job said, well, you know, they might go a little far with the wine at these parties they're having, and perhaps they would even transgress and, and curse the name of God and Lest they do that, I'm going to pray on their behalf and intercede for them. Well, here's a man that wasn't just concerned for his own piety, but for others as well. What an example. What a positive man. If God was impressed with any man in the world, wouldn't he be impressed with a man like this? We might ask ourselves, would anyone who knows me best and knows me through and through speak to me, to others, and say, oh, yes, that fellow, he's blameless and upright and fears God and shuns evil. Certainly something we all could strive to have said about ourselves here. Well, thirdly today, as I just introduced this to you in broad brush fashion, I want to mention three sub-points that are large lessons that we should expect to discover within this book of Job as we study it in weeks and months ahead, Lord willing. First of all, while this book can become complex and and be a little frustrating to understand at times, it's not incomprehensible. And I don't want you to lose sight of the forest, the big picture for getting lost with the trees and the leaves on the trees. These friends of Job in particular are going to be running up the flagpole a bunch of ideas that are false ideas, false accusations, and we need to see through them and see the falseness of their arguments that they make. These guys were the great-granddaddies of all people who require a one-to-one relationship between a particular sin and particular suffering. Now, this is a fundamental assumption of many people, that if there's suffering going on in somebody's life or some detrimental experience has befallen you, some tragedy, there are people today all around you who will assume, what did you do wrong? Because the universe is cause and effect, and if you're suffering that bad thing, you must have done something wrong. Well, first of all, we can say they might be correct. You know, we do make bad decisions or do dumb things that cause suffering to come upon us. Let's face it, it happens. But it's not necessarily the case all the time. We could see an instance of this in the New Testament in John chapter 9. Remember Jesus and his Disciples were walking along, and they came upon a man who was blind, and he'd been blind from birth, and I guess he was well-known in the town, and the disciples knew. They said, Rabbi, who sinned here, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? There had to be a cause-effect. 
And that was the assumption, and it is the assumption today many times. Who sinned here that this person has, you know, lost their, their, their 401k plan? Or who sinned here that this person has got this dread disease? Well, Jesus' answer on that occasion was neither the man nor his parents sinned directly, but he said it happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, that's exactly applicable to Job. Job did not directly sin to have all the things catastrophically come upon him that we're going to read about in the later part of chapter 1, losing everything he had. No direct sin of his at all. But it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, there are times when we suffer and God is chastening us, or maybe he's simply allowing us to suffer the consequences of bad decisions that we made. I've had that happen to me, surely. Decisions I've made that were not all that wise, and I had to put up with consequences thereof, and I couldn't shake my fist at God and say, this is all your fault, because I knew that it was a result of something I'd done. But when it's not clearly traceable, that's the hard time, isn't it? When we can't easily see, why is this painful thing here? Why won't it go away? Why did it happen in the first place? Be wary of those who come to you, particularly if they come in the garb of Christians and think they are Christians wiser than God himself. And they come maybe to your hospital room when you've gotten the diagnosis of uh, stage 3 cancer and a dire course of surgery or radiation or something's prescribed and and boy, you know, the, the thing you really don't need when you're facing that is a well-meaning Christian coming to your room and saying, you know, if you just confess your sin before God, this cancer would go away. And the health and wealth gospel of today has people that will do that to you. I know people in churches I have served who those folks have come along and waved their Bible and declared, just do this, just confess this, and, of course, your cancer will go away. My advice on those occasions are look for where there's a rectangular opening in your hospital room called a door. Point at the door and say, please go. And as they exit, slam the door behind them. No one is wiser than God to know the causes of our sufferings or to prescribe for us the confession that will make it go away. Among many unworthy ideas of God is, and maybe this applies to some of us that have been around a little bit longer, because I know in this day and age in the, in the schools, no teacher or principal or anybody is allowed to touch a student, but it hasn't always been that way. Some of you who are older can remember, well, you didn't know him personally, but I'm remembering Mr. Root. Mr. Root was the assistant principal of my junior high school. Mr. Root was the enforcer. And Mr. Root knew how to make himself invisible right near the door of the boy's lavatory so that any boy that came out of that lavatory smelling in the slightest way of cigarette smoke was grabbed by the collar. I, this didn't happen to me, by the way, but it, did, it happened to other people. Was grabbed by the collar and whacked on the side of the head by Mr. Root. Now, there are people who think that's God. He's standing around waiting for me to mess up to sin in a big way so he can slap me on the side of the head with some kind of punishment. That's not it either, folks. 
That's an unworthy concept of God. Job is going to teach us a high concept of God, a God who is sovereign in control, who is majestic, whose providence rules over all things. John Calvin preached 159 sermons on Job. I'm not even going to attempt to match him, okay? I'll try for about 10% of that. But Calvin asserted throughout all of his 159 sermons on Job that God was in control. That he was the majestic one who should be worshipped. That fearing him did not mean terror, that it meant respect and adoration. So that Calvin said at one point that the first thing you would do is to submit to God's sovereignty before you challenge it or demand to comprehend it. And don't we get that backwards? We say, God, I demand an explanation. Tell me why. And if I find your your explanation acceptable, maybe I'll consider yielding to you and worshiping you. But you better convince me with a good answer first. What Job is going to find is that he's asked to submit and bow and worship first of all, and that he may find after that some explanations, but actually he may not. Because what God is interested in is steadfastness and perseverance in faith, even in the face of great pain. I'm going to close with this today from a a mention of Job, one place in the New Testament where you might be surprised. It's in James chapter 5. James, the brother of Christ, wrote in James 5, 10 and 11. Let me quote his words. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers... Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider them blessed, for they remain steadfast. You have heard, for example, of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how he was compassionate and merciful. You hear what James is saying? Job is counted as one of those who remained steadfast, who worshiped God through difficult, suffering. But in the end, God was revealed to be compassionate and merciful. But he didn't necessarily give Job a one-for-one explanation of all the whys. Now, we've got much more to come, but as I do close, I'm quoting one more person, a British commentator who wrote this about Job. He said, men seek an explanation of suffering in terms of cause and effect. And so they look backward into human behavior and say, you did this and therefore this happened. But he said the Bible looks forward in hope towards the outcomes that suffering might bring. And in order to glory in the ultimate goals and accomplishments of suffering, we will need either to have very long patience to wait on God or even a willingness to die before we grasp the matter completely. Hear what he's saying? You might have to die without the explanation of your suffering, but you're called to be steadfast. And so he concluded, in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Such is the tenor of this book of Job that we're going to explore more in weeks to come. Father, Help us to explore the way that this man had to walk. 
in great difficulty and pain, greater than any of us has ever had to endure. Many here before me, I'm awed to say and humbled to say, have suffered and are suffering. Father, nobody has lost all their fortune, all their children, the respect of their wife, the respect of their friends all at once. May we possibly learn from this great sufferer how to stand fast before Christ, who suffered all for us. Amen.